0: Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Ken Bowers on October 4, 2016. It wasn't Ken's intention, but life called him to serve at the Baha'i National Center in Wilmette, Illinois for 25 years. Ken currently serves as the Secretary General for the United States Baha'i National Spiritual Assembly, the Governing Council for the Baha'is in the U.S., Ken provides in this interview some very good explanations of some of the fundamental principles of the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Ken where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there.
1: I was born in Harrisonburg, Virginia, but while still an infant, my mother and father moved back to my mother's hometown of Augusta, Georgia, which is where she was born and raised, and where my father got a job at a local radio station as a broadcaster. And so from about the age of nine months or so, uh, essentially for most of my childhood, I grew up there in Augusta, Georgia. And as to what it was like, it was a very interesting time in American history because, of course, as you well know and as most of our listeners would know, given that I'm in my mid-50s, this was a time when we were still in the throes of civil rights. And in particular, there was a lot going on in terms of the relations between Black and white people at that time. And some of my earliest memories have to do with not only the tensions that were going on around me in the society of Augusta and in Georgia in general, but also uh, the contrasting example that my parents were attempting to raise me with of tolerance and of inclusiveness and an attitude of the equality of all of the races. It made quite an interesting contrast. Why was it, do you think, that your
0: parents in such a society were tolerant and open-minded in regard to race relations?
1: My father was a non-practicing Catholic for most of his life. Yet even as a young man, he was distinguished from, I think, his siblings and also many others around him growing up in Washington, D.C., by an attitude of tolerance, not to say love for all people, and always had that attitude, but was not a practicing member of the church, because among those who claimed to be religious, he rarely found what he considered to be a true spirit of brotherhood. My mother uh, was raised in a Methodist household, and also found in her upbringing that there was a contradiction between the professed values of brotherhood and love for all people and what she saw in actual practice. Both of them in their own ways encountered uh, as young people the teachings of the Baha'i faith which is uh, a faith that has always had as its central principle the oneness of humanity that is the belief that all people are God's children which is something common to most religions but also the insistence that that belief be translated into action in our social relations, in family life, in the institutions of society, and in general our service to the world where we try to make a society that reflects that principle of oneness and of justice for all people. So separately they were both attracted to the Baha'i faith and eventually became members and committed to that ideal. Uh,
0: so Ken, you grew up as a Baha'i then?
1: Right. I was raised as a Baha'i. And so I had the wonderful advantage, I suppose, of people uh, around me who very much believed in this issue of justice and uh, of love and inclusion of all people. And again, you know, one of the most remarkable things about that was the contrast between what I saw going on in this very small community of people who were committed to this idea, because there were not very many Baha'is in the entire South, let alone In augusta georgia when i was growing up and all around me of course we had this whole question of school integration and neighborhood integration and all of these were being fought against tooth and nail by the dominant culture even though uh, brown versus the board of education was passed in the mid-1950s in most places in the south it was not for many years before uh, schools actually became integrated and that usually over the protests of most of the people so Although I entered first grade in 1967, nevertheless, I was in the first integrated class in the public schools of Richmond County. So that shows you how long it took. That's about, you know, 12 years or so that it took for integration actually to take place. And so I remember all of that. And all around me, the amazing thing was that everybody was saying that black and white people could never get together. They were not meant to be together. They were distinct peoples. Of course, among the whites with whom I associated, there was this notion of the superiority of the white race, and I even have distinct memories of fresh-faced kids coming out of Sunday school having been taught that the Bible upheld this principle of the superiority of the white race. There was this thing called the curse of Ham. Ham was one of the sons of Noah and apparently was cursed by God for some reason, and the southern white people believed that his curse was to be turned black and made subservient to white people, and that all black people are his descendants. So you just heard these remarkable, if not crazy, things. And yet, so there they were in this in this larger society, and everything around me argued against the idea that people could ever come together. Yet in this very small community of Baha'is, and those who sympathized with the Baha'is, because there were also some of them, I saw a different world, a world of possibility and a world where black and white people, not to mention people who were Latinos or people of Middle Eastern extraction of all kinds of diversity, coming together to worship, but also to socialize and as friends and intimately sharing you know, their lives and their aspirations and working together. So as a child, I, I saw this sense of what really could be in the world if we just, if you will, put our minds to it and and focused on that. And so it taught me a lot of very valuable lessons about the possibilities in human nature and also, I think, gave me a little bit of a, an ability to stand against the majority opinion in society if majority opinion is against my inner core principles and values.
0: So it developed a courage within you to swim upstream with a culture that was very prejudiced?
1: I learned not to care what the majority of people around me thought. Not that I didn't like them or respect them as individuals and as people, But I also knew from experience that often what people around me thought just wasn't true. And the same thing with religious beliefs. I mean, as a member of a religion that was not the predominant religion of the Deep South, I was often predicted to burn uh, in the afterlife. And I just (laughs) didn't feel that I had that coming. and And I felt that there were a lot of people who were very good and who loved God and who loved other people who would not deserve such a fate. So again, I just learned not to take all of that very seriously, but rather to try to think for myself and learn for myself.
0: So did the Baha'is have integrated meetings?
1: Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I've done some research on that and discovered that even before my own time, that is to say, as far as back as I can go in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, looking in the pages of the local newspaper, the Augusta Chronicle, one sees that the only religion that advertised integrated religious gatherings was the Baha'i faith. And certainly that was the case when I was coming along. That was all I knew was integrated meetings. In fact, we were so small that often those meetings were held in our own homes. Uh, We didn't have a Baha'i church, as it were, or as we would call them, a Baha'i center. Rather, uh, in most cases, we either met in public buildings that we were able to rent or lease at a a low cost or in each other's homes. In fact, I remember as a child, the one public building where by law it was legal for integrated meetings to take place happened to be on the campus of the Medical College of Georgia. And it was in that building that the Baha'is held regular public meetings, inviting people of both races from the wider society to come and join us. And then in our own home too, we had uh, integrated meetings and these quickly came to the attention of our neighbors who just as quickly began to issue anonymous threats against our safety. And of course, this being the 1960s, one didn't know for certain that such threats would not materialize, that people would not follow through on those threats because let's remember these were the days of race riots in many major cities. And, of course, all of the terrible things that were going on in the Deep South where people were working for social justice, many people fell victim to that, uh, paid for that with their lives. And so one could never say with certainty that that would not be the fate of people who would hold integrated meetings either in what were at that time strictly segregated neighborhoods. But we did face those threats, or I, I shouldn't say that I did because I was just a child, but my parents did.
0: Do you remember, as a child, any of those situations?
1: Well, those go back to when I was very, very small, and some of them I don't remember myself, although I was present at a number of uh, occasions, and in one occasion I remember very much that my parents talk about and many other of the people who were around in those days talk about when uh, in one of our informational gatherings at our house, threatened by people in trucks carrying shotguns and dynamite, but fortunately were able to defuse that situation. But that was highly impressive to people who came to learn about the Baha'i faith, particularly those of African-American descent, but but also white people who came, because they could see that the Baha'is were willing to take a stand for their beliefs. And for that reason, uh, that caused many of them themselves to commit to those same beliefs. Later in my life, I do have distinct memories, for example, of uh, occasions where my birthday in the neighborhood was boycotted by some of my neighbors out of a fear uh, that we would have African-American kids as guests, Uh, a correct fear in the sense that we did invite them, uh, African-American kids, but they were wrong to fear that. But nevertheless, the parents just wouldn't allow their children to associate with black kids, black and white, just couldn't mix. So those kinds of things and uh, my brother i have a younger brother my brother and i uh, were frequently throughout uh, our lives in junior high and in high school harassed by other kids because it was known what our thinking was along these lines and interestingly it really was not so much a religious thing i mean although there were people who it's interesting you know the baha'is believe in, in christ we accept the bible and we believe in Christ, we love Christ, yet because we're not strictly Christian, nevertheless you know, we were often criticized for that, but never really physically threatened. It was only with the race issue that we were really harassed and, and physically threatened.
0: One of the Baha'i teachings is the independent investigation of truth. Is there a moment in time that you realized or became aware that the baha'i faith was your religion and not the religion and so much the religion of your
1: parents that you were following yes i remember that very well in the baha'i faith it's considered that at the age of 15 one attains to the point of spiritual maturity not to say that one is fully an adult but one begins then to take responsibility for one's own spiritual choices and spiritual and moral development in life. So when I turned 14, a year before that, my 14th birthday, my father came to me and he said, well, in a year you will arrive at this stage, age 15, and you'll be able to make your own choice about what religion you want to belong to and how you want to live your life. And he said, what I really want to emphasize to you is that it be your choice and he said I don't care what you become as long as it's sincerely what you want to do if you want to be a Baha'i that's great if you want to be an atheist or a Hindu or anything else that's fine with me as long as it's your own choice and as long as you yourself have carefully considered the matter and made your own choice so I took my dad very seriously I was I'm still kind of impressed, you know, that he said that to me because, you know, most people just want their child to be what they are and raise their children that way. And I'm sure that somewhere in him, he hoped that I would follow him as a Baha'i or follow his footsteps as a Baha'i. But he gave me what I consider to be kind of a challenge, and I took it very seriously. So I remember the the whole course of that year reading just about every religious book, that is, book of every other religion that I could get my hands on, and even conducting little interviews with my peers who were – I guess I was about you know eighth or ninth grade at that, at that point, 14 years old – and interviewing them, including people who didn't believe in God at all. I remember very distinctly one of my friends was a Mormon, another was a Hindu, another one was an atheist, another one, well, plenty of them were Christians. And so I read the Bible, I read the Quran, I read the Bhagavad Gita, everything I could, philosophers, and so on. And then, of course, you know, the writings of the Baha'i faith, read the Bible, and, and all of that, attended church meetings, as a matter of fact, just to Assure myself that I had acquainted myself with every avenue of possible belief that at least was available to me at that time. And this took the better part of that year, but by the time I was approaching 15, I was satisfied that in all of these religions there was a common center. That is to say, I ended up grasping better and appreciating the notion that is in the Baha'i Faith, that in essence all of these religions. Are one, they're part of one divine process for the education of humanity, for our spiritual and social upliftment, and that the Baha'i Faith represents the latest chapter in that great book in human history whereby God has guided us through the appearance of these messengers or prophets throughout the course of history. You know, in reading, appreciating in a way that I might never have before that commonality because i felt that same spirit going through all of these holy books so that convinced me that the essential message of the baha'i faith was right for me and and so at 15 i did formally register as a baha'i
0: at about that age did you have a sense of what you wanted to do once you were through with
1: high school as a Baha'i, one of the things that I accept is, is the Baha'i teaching that we have a purpose here in life. We are endowed with souls as human beings, and our souls continue to exist after we die, and we continue to progress spiritually in the spiritual world. And that the, the purpose of this life is to acquire the attributes necessary for our continued evolution and progress in the next world but the means to that is through a life of service to humanity service to others the things that we're trying to acquire here are what one might call the divine attributes of love of compassion of justice of mercy of course there are also you know the intellectual attributes of of reason and the capacity to solve difficult challenges and contribute to the advancement of human civilization. All of these things are necessary aspects of our lives. So the general goal really was to be of service to the world, to do something with whatever talents God had given me that would be meaningful in the sense that it would make for a meaningful life for myself, but also meaningful in the sense that it would result in the betterment of the world and benefit to other people. So generally speaking, that was the goal well I had a hard time deciding exactly how that was going to come about and so I went from one field to another but to make a long story short I think I finally towards my uh, mid to late 20s had settled on the notion that I would go into academia I enjoyed the academic life and decided that I might make a very good teacher at a university level and so I went to the trouble of teaching myself the Persian language, which is the language of the founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah, thinking that in some way I might be of service in translation or in some way bringing that to the rest of the world, and got so far as acceptance into a PhD-level program. But at about that time, my life took a different path. When I was asked by the governing body of the Baha'i Faith, In the United States, the National Spiritual Assembly, to come to the Baha'i National Center to serve. Normally, I would not have aspired to anything like that, but when asked to serve, having that attitude of service, I felt that it was important to accept that request, to honor that request. And so I was married at that time, and my wife and I agreed that we would come here for a brief time and serve maybe one or two years, and then I would resume my life But then, what happened after that was I ended up in a series of elected positions. And here we are now. Uh, I came for a year or two, and now I've been at the National Center for 25 years as a result of that. So, although I thought I had my path, nevertheless, it seems that I actually had a different path. But in this path, I've been able to enjoy a great deal of wonderful experiences. And I do feel as though. It has been an opportunity of service to others. And so for that, I'm extremely grateful.
0: So could you share with us, Ken, what serving at the National Center for the Baha'is, how Um, that has provided maybe a unique perspective for you that maybe you would not have gained if you were not there but doing your path of service in some other way in some other area?
1: By temperament, I'll say that I'm kind of an individualist. I'm kind of a loner. I'm introverted, and so growing up, I enjoyed my own study and my own pursuits. Even in sports, I enjoyed golf and tennis and hiking, all the things that don't require you to be on a team. I never really took a particular satisfaction or a particular happiness in group work or group efforts. This service, though, has stretched me in quite a different direction because I've learned very much the value of working with others, collaborating with others, and the power of this idea that is very important in the Baha'i faith of consultation. That is to say that in creating a better world, in solving the problems that confront us in society, there must be a means of searching for truth together that embodies a spirit of learning, an attitude of humility, an attitude of detachment, yet a passionate desire to find truth and a willingness to join your own mind with the mind of others in that search. And so consultation is at the heart of the way that we try to improve the conditions of the world. And I think I've had far more opportunities to engage in that sort of search and that sort of a process than might have been the case had I followed the path of my own choosing. And I think that is the most significant difference probably between this experience and what likely might have been had I gone another way. But there are many others as well. You know, it's a service here at the National Center also has Required me to travel quite a bit throughout the United States and to some extent Internationally as well and this has brought me into contact with people of so many different backgrounds and you know every conceivable race and and class and creed and I've seen the most marvelous things in process as people whether in neighborhoods or small towns or even in national and international forums discuss the issues of our times, and try to apply to those issues spiritual values, yet values that yield practical results. And no doubt that is something that, too, is is quite different than might otherwise have been the case. So it's been very wonderful to see that.
0: Everybody has been witnessing, let's say, the deterioration of the order in the world. I think maybe 20 or 30 years ago, one said that Our political system is completely dysfunctional I don't think people would have necessarily agreed so readily as let's say they might today and so and I think there's a lot of people that see a lot of problems in the world I'm wondering if you could explain does the Baha'i faith offer a solution to these problems and what would be unique about the Baha'i perspective on these solutions versus maybe other pursuits in in trying
1: to resolve these problems. Let me start just by giving, in general terms, a sense of the Baha'i perspective on human history, where we've come so far and where we're headed as the human race on this planet. Now, this is a very complex issue, and I don't want to oversimplify it, and I think one of the things I'd say at the outset is that if it sounds as though I'm being over-general or simplistic then I would invite your listeners to do their own reading, because certainly there is a great deal more said in the writings of the Baha'i faith than I would have time to present here. But generally speaking, the belief of the Baha'is is is that we are standing at a threshold of a new chapter in human history. Throughout human history, we have advanced since pre-recorded days in our spiritual and our social evolution to a point where now it could be said that we are on the cusp of attaining the age of our maturation, our social and spiritual maturity. If previous eras might be likened using this idea of maturity to our childhood as a species on this planet, then now we are perhaps in our adolescence as a species. And with our adolescence comes the, the tumult and the confusion and the pull, the one pull towards childhood with all of its immaturities and symptoms of lack of understanding and emotionalism, and then the other that pull towards a greater understanding of who we are and what our potentials are. Our belief is that maturity has been propelled or that maturing process has been propelled by God throughout history in the appearance of these manifestations of God, these divine educators who have come from time to time until now in this day, The coming of baha'u'llah what we see at work in our society are the manifestations of that adolescence on the one hand we see the destructive or disintegrative forces that are around us all over the place manifested in creeds and in outlooks that are outworn and not suited for an age that is increasingly seeing the need for humanity to come together as a global society some of those creeds include extreme nationalism, racism, materialism, and so on. And we see the effects of these in the disorder from the local level all the way up to the international level. But on the other hand, there's a more positive trend. That is one towards the realization of the oneness of humanity and its implications for the, the structuring of society along global lines. It couldn't be denied in the last century how much uh, a global consciousness has begun to emerge and how thinking people all over the world are more acutely aware of the need for the nations of the world, for the peoples of the world to come together and work out their issues, to exist together in harmony with equitable sharing of the world's resources with access to education for all, with equal opportunities for all, particularly women and men, as well as people of all races and creeds. So the issue then is to work on the side of the forces of unity. But in doing so, another principle comes into play for the Baha'is, and that is that the means need to be the same as the ends. What I mean by that is it's very difficult in a society where you yourself mentioned that discourse is so fragmented and so difficult, where complex ideas are reduced to sound bites, where those sound bites also are usually accompanied by you know finger pointing and adversarialism and divisiveness, such that even people of very good will, and there are many people of good will in the world who want to see a better world, find it difficult to engage in a kind of discourse that really yields the results they want, because The means are not there. So the question is, how do we build a community? How do we engage in discourse that is constructive, that is unifying, and gets us where we need to be in terms of building that society of peace and of justice and of prosperity? Consultation is one of those processes. The recognition of our fundamental oneness is an important principle. There are other spiritual principles that apply, which if we apply them to our process as well as our goals in society, then perhaps we stand a better chance. And it's for this that the Baha'is are working. And, of course, we're working very much with other people of similar sentiments, of like mind, of many different backgrounds all over the world to do the same thing.
0: The Baha'is, on a day-to-day basis, are focused on what they call... Core activities for community building. How would you explain to someone that's not familiar with these activities what purpose is in having these activities and what the Baha'is are trying to achieve with these activities?
1: The way I think of these activities, first to define the core activities, these are considered by the Baha'is as, if you will, the foundation Blocks the building blocks of community life. And the purpose of the activities is really to serve a process, and the process is to bring people together to build our capacity to love, to develop our potentials as human beings, and to help each other to do so. The Baha'i viewpoint to life, uh, as I mentioned before, is one of an orientation towards God as God's children. And what we try to do is, together, Interact with God's teachings, with God's word for today. That interaction really is manifested in prayer together, in study of the word, and in the application of that word in our lives and in the building of a community. But in that, we consider ourselves as learning together with others, walking a path with other people where we're trying to come together to grapple with the issues and the challenges that we face in the belief that it is God's will today for us to come together in unity and that together we can learn how to do that. So it's an attitude of learning. It's an attitude of capacity building. Then the activities themselves serve that purpose. So, for example, you know, one of the activities is devotional gatherings. But when one thinks about this, what could be more meaningful than people of different backgrounds coming together, praying together engaging in spiritual and meaningful conversation around the purpose of life, the purpose of existence, but also service to the world. Martin Luther King famously said that the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning, because even among churches that all believe in the oneness of humanity, or, or so they feel, nevertheless, we had not been able to break down the barriers, even in religious settings between people. But the idea is if we can do that, if we can come together and build these spiritual and intimate relationships, and we begin to eat away at these presuppositions about each other, these prejudices and this sense of distance or otherness that we have. Another is how we educate our children. If we can provide moral and spiritual education to children, to adolescents, you know, I, I spoke of adolescence as a time of turmoil, and certainly it is a time of turmoil, but it's also A great period of potential. Baha'is believe that we often underestimate the potentials of children and young people and the effect that their encounter with a moral framework can have in helping them to choose to lead a life uh, that is meaningful and one of service to others. And so there's the question of coming together and doing that, and these are other core activities. And then there's how we come together To engage in the exploration of spiritual and social reality. In the Baha'i faith there is no clergy. We don't have people who are professionally trained or called to ministry as such. All of us are as human beings encountering the Word of God. All of us are called to serve humanity. All of us are called to walk in this path. None of us is the master or the guru while others are the students but all of us stand to learn from each other all of us stand to contribute to the creation of this community and whoever we are from whatever background we are we should find ways that we embrace and nurture all people
0: you had published a book called God Speaks Again in 2004 Mm -hmm. what was the inspiration in developing that work?
1: well I probably had more than one inspiration behind it. But essentially, one of the things that the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, asked of those who accepted his teachings was to share those teachings with others. And so, really, the inspiration in writing the book was out of a desire to share those teachings. I mean, it's really as simple as that, but it was quite a challenge to do that. Baha'u'llah lived an amazing life, really one that is one of the great examples of spiritual leadership and example in all of human history, one punctuated by tremendous suffering, as one often sees, in the case of the great educators in history, but also of noble triumph. I think one of the things that impressed me most as a child and in in the way I wrote the book I thought about this a lot. When I was seven years old, I was given as a gift a New Testament by one of my aunts, and I devoured that New Testament. I sat down and I read it right away, and I fell in love with the story of Jesus. What impressed me so much about him was not only the teachings of Christ, but also the beauty of his life and then also the impact that he clearly had on those whom he met. Now, remember, this was a seven-year-old, so I wasn't really, if you will, you know, pre-programmed to receive the Bible in any particular way. Uh, I had not grown up in a church-going household because I was a member of the Baha'i faith. Although we, we did believe in Jesus and I knew who he was, this was my first encounter with the story of Jesus, And I just absolutely fell in love with that story because one could see very clearly that here was something very, very special in human history. I remember distinctly thinking, well, whoever you are, if a fair person has to realize that this man was sincere, at least that, you know, sincere and had a deep impact and was tremendously courageous and his teachings are just dazzlingly beautiful. I mean, that's the very least. Of course, I believe more about him than just that. But in thinking about Baha'u'llah, the same challenges there. And I think his life fits that same mold. If you look at the events and the circumstances, the beauty, the grandeur, the attractiveness of his teachings, the foresight that he had about the needs of humanity, which I believe we're only now catching up with, and to think that he came in the middle of the 19th century in the Middle East is quite an astonishing thing. And then the impact that he has had in the world. All of these things really speak to someone who is among those great ones of, of history who have come in the past. So I took on the challenge fully realizing how daunting that it would be. And I would not present any claim to have done his life justice whatsoever. Yet at the same time. I just felt impelled to, nevertheless, give it a, a try, you know, of sharing that story with other people.
0: Now, you mentioned that Baha'u'llah revealed himself as the latest of the manifestations of God, the prophet founders of the, of the religions of the world, he being the latest, that in the mid-19th century, he presented teachings that were pretty radical at the time in an area of the world that made it even more radical. The first one I'm thinking of is the equality of men and women. Mm-hmm. At the time, women didn't have the right to vote in this country, let alone the oppression of women in Persia from where he comes from. That and also the other teaching in which he said that if a family cannot afford to educate all their children a priority of educating the girls because uh, the girls are the ones that are primarily the ones that nurture and mother the children and we want our children to be raised in an educated fashion so that we always have an ever-advancing civilization. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about that.
1: Yes. Again, I'll take a longer view of history, if you don't mind, and then I'll come back. I'll come back to that question. If we look at the great religions of the past, whether Islam or Christianity, Judaism, many of the others, one sees a common theme that is expressed, an aspiration that is expressed of a time when humanity would come together. And if you think of the Old Testament, of course, one thinks of these promises that the wolf shall lie down with the lamb and one remembers Ezekiel that the law will go forth from the mountain of God and and justice will rule and so on. And of course the promises of Christ and the promises in Islam in the Quran about a time when there would be peace established in the world. Christ's prayer, of course, memorably is that it would be on earth as it is in heaven at some point. And so the followers of these religions, in their own way, have anticipated some sort of a time now in many cases they've interpreted as literally the end of human history that god would by some you know sudden event or series of events intervene in human history in such a way as to take control over it but the baha'i belief is that the creation of that new world really was fulfilled or the beginning of that creation was fulfilled in the coming of baha'u'llah that he represents The actual fulfillment of God's promise as given to all of those messengers and and prophets and saints uh, of the past religious dispensations of human history. But the key difference is that rather than by some sudden miracle, just as the religions of the past have grown and flourished, so too will this new dispensation and its spirit gradually envelop the world. In past religious dispensations, the manifestations of God the messengers of God, have been empowered by him to bring teachings that were suited for the times in which they lived, but also to unfold certain eternal truths, the eternal truths being, of course, such as the existence of God, the idea of loving others as one would love oneself and, and doing right by others, The ideas of justice, of mercy and compassion, and then other teachings that were more immediately suited to the times and the level of development of humanity then. And for that reason, perhaps in no prior dispensation did any prophet to the same degree give the kinds of teachings that Baha'u'llah gave for this time in history. Because, as we said before, this is the time in history when humanity is destined to come in age, when we are destined to create a civilization that is global in its scope, that is the embodiment of all of these goals that have been expressed in the past. But we also need principles that are in tune with the humanity that has come of age. One, of course, is the realization of the equality of women and men, the fundamental equality. Now, that is an idea very radical in its day and time when Baha'u'llah first enunciated it, but now, of course, is more commonly accepted, not to say that we don't have a long way to go, in understanding it and applying it in our lives, but nevertheless, humanity eventually will come to understand and embrace that, not to mention many other things that Baha'u'llah taught. The other, another is the principle of universal access to education for all people. Another, the equitable sharing of the earth's resources, and how important is that today when we see the effects on our climate of the misuse, uh, misappropriation of those resources of the elimination of extremes of wealth and of poverty. And, of course, we do see extremes of that sort in our society around us. And the question will be, how will humanity learn applying these principles to create a society that is permeated with this sense of justice? And, of course, justice really being the opportunity for every individual to fulfill his or her own potential, to not only benefit from the things that this world has to offer, but to contribute to the betterment of the world. So not only to get, but also to give to others. The teachings of Baha'u'llah, I think we'll find, are very much suited and in tune with the needs of that kind of a world that we're trying to build.
0: And would you say the Baha'i faith has a positive outlook for the destiny of the world?
1: Yes, a positive ultimate outcome. Baha'u'llah was very clear that the road to our destiny would be a thorny one, And that there would be a great deal of tribulation and tumult as humanity, through trial and ordeal, learned to shed its outdated mode of thinking, its outdated ways of acting. And to learn to appreciate the things that he came to bring to transcend our lower selves and to understand the potential for the higher selves that we can be. And what I mean by that is. You know, as human beings, we do have a lower nature. uh, One might say a more animal nature, one that is driven by competition, by aggression, by self-satisfaction, by the endless struggle for survival, by even the assumption that the nature of this existence is that we are inevitably doomed to be struggling with each other, let alone with the environment, to get what we can while we can for ourselves and maybe for our families or those in our tribe, in our, in our group, and against all of the others. But Baha'u'llah, like all of the great messengers of the past, reminds us of that spiritual nature, the spiritual potentials of mankind, the nobility to which we can arise if we orient ourselves in that way. It doesn't just come of its own accord. We have to be conscious of it. We have to show volition. We have to struggle. We have to strive. But in that struggle, we learn how to transcend that lower nature, and to uh, gradually acquire these higher attributes. And then we learn how to live with each other and see the potential for reciprocity, for mutuality, for collaboration and cooperation in life, such that our whole sense of who we are as human beings is entirely different from what it might have been before. So we'll get there. It will be a difficult path, but the ultimate outcome, we do believe, is a bright one, and that's the one that has been promised to us.
0: Well, Ken, I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts uh, with us today. You're quite welcome.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ken Bowers, the current Secretary General of the Baha'i National Spiritual Assembly for the United States. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website bahai.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.
2: Tell myself, look alive, I will die in you. can't see through the pain. You know, I can't see through the rain and the stain on the frame. So I look inside and I hear a voice say, If you love me, turn away. So I turn away from myself, I'll stay forever like this. Through the night, through the day, I learn the better things come my way if I die in Him and begin to pray. So it's clear with no tears and no fear. We don't need to wait around for heaven to appear because it's right here inside so come on everybody look alive
3: As planes rise, cares descend, from squatting in the dwelling of a friend. the friend, open wounds of lifetime start to mend Sunlight on my skin it melts away that shame called fear of sin. I start to seek out beauty in every living thing. Sparks tempt, fingers singe. When thankful sipping turns to midnight binge, it falls and gets up, real life. To feel a bit afraid, it's shown the way to every leap I've made.
0: This is WXOJLP Northampton, one oh three point three FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.